Hello, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast, the show where Mark Meckler and Rita Peters discuss hot-button issues from a biblical perspective, helping to equip other Christians to bring light to a darkened culture. Rita is the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs, and Mark serves as the CEO and co-founder for Convention of States Action. Find out more by visiting conventionofstates.com slash pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm your host, Rita Peters. I'm sorry to say you're stuck with just me today because my co-host, Mark Meckler, is out on assignment again. But rest assured that once again, I have a wonderful guest with me. Our program today is all about the World Health Organization treaties and why you should care about these things. And to help us work through this rather complex topic, I'm happy to introduce constitutional attorney and scholar, Michael Ferris. Mike, welcome back to the program. I think this is just your second time here. Thanks for being with us again. I'm always glad to be with you any place, especially on Crossroads. (laughs) Great. So for those of you who might not know Mike Ferris, Mike was the founding president of both the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and Patrick Henry College in Purcellville, Virginia. He has served as lead counsel in the United States Supreme Court, eight federal circuit courts, and the appellate courts of 13 states. Mike is largely known for his work in constitutional appellate litigation, religious freedom, and homeschool advocacy. He is a co-founder of Convention of States Action, the organization that I work for. And after founding COS, he took a hiatus and went to work defending religious freedom, human life, and the family full-time as the president, CEO, and general counsel of Alliance Defending Freedom, the world's premier defender of religious liberty. Following five years of work with ADF, Mike has returned to Convention of States to help push the Article 5 solution over the finish line. If you haven't heard our previous programs on Convention of States and want to learn more, you can do that at conventionofstates.com. And I also want to mention that Mike and his wife, Vicki, have 10 children and many grandchildren. But wait. There's more. (laughs) Before we dive in to this particular program, I want our listeners to know that, yes, Mike Ferris is a parental rights guy, a religious freedom guy, a pro-life guy. You might be thinking, surely he can't also be an international law expert, too, but he is. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about your expertise in this area of international law and treaties. Well, uh, Rita, thank you for all that generous uh, introduction, but uh, uh, I still think of myself as a kid from Timbo, Arkansas, but nonetheless, uh, uh, I have an LLM, which is an advanced law degree uh, in public international law uh, with an emphasis on human rights uh, from the University of London. I I also taught constitutional law, or well, I did teach constitutional law, but also I taught international law at uh, Patrick Henry College. one of my court teams in international law won the world championship at the UN going against law schools. The only two American teams that qualified were Patrick Henry undergraduates and Yale Law School, and, and we won the world championship. So 
Uh, I have worked on international law issues, uh, both um, for ADF at, uh, in helping with uh, is issues before the European Court of Human Rights and uh, some inter-American court activity as well. I didn't appear as counsel, but I was helping to proofread the briefs. Uh, and so, <clears throat> uh, uh, but I really uh, got the LLM in the first place so that I would have uh, deep treaty knowledge so I could stop the improper use of treaties in the United States because I was uh, leading the charge in stopping the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, this Women's Convention, the CEDAW, I helped to some degree on that, but that actually kind of got killed as a byproduct of killing the Children's Convention. <clears throat> and I also helped, along with Rick Santorum and Senator Mike Lee, um, helped lead the charge to kill the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Not that we don't like good policy for people with disabilities. We just think that Americans should make the law for America and that we should not have UN agencies telling the United States what our policy has to be in this regard. So. Uh, that's been the theme for all those is, is this, we don't want, it's not that we don't want children's policies or, you know, good law for families. We just want Americans to make the law for uh, all those things. So, so that's the background and I, I've, I've delved in this uh, more than I ever expected, but uh, uh, it's, it's been a very uh, deep interest to me. Well, that is actually a great segue into our topic for today. So we're hearing a lot in the news these days about the World Health Organization's Pandemic Preparedness Treaty, which is something that apparently the Biden administration fully supports. So today we're going to talk about this. What is happening? Is it constitutional? And what does it mean for America's future? But first, Mike, tell us a little bit about the World Health Organization, just, just in general, you know, not too detailed, but who are they? Who pays for them? What do they do? Do we need them? What is the World Health Organization? Well, WHO is a UN agency, and that's probably almost all that we really need to know. Um, they uh, busy themselves with lots of things. And um you know, there, there are issues that go on at the UN. I, I don't mind the idea of, of nations getting together and talking and sharing ideas. Uh, and, and to some degree, the, the World Health Organization does that. So there, there's, it, it, you, we couldn't paint this with an entirely evil brush. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, unfortunately, there's, there's a saying a, a friend of mine once told me, he says, the goal of every committee is to rule the world. And uh, and that, that applies to the student body of, uh, uh, <laughs> committee at Patrick Henry College, uh, the women's ministry at my church, uh, yeah. and, and, but, but especially Don't pick on women, Mike. <laughs> okay, and the men's ministry as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, all, every committee. It's not, you know, it, it is not gender specific. It is every committee. Um, yeah. but, but the people at the UN really have a shot at this. Uh, and so they want their work to count. And so they feel that, that it's appropriate for them to make policy that the whole world has to obey. Um, and, and the advent of international law, basically since World War II, uh, has given them a platform to do that. And it's, it's really, uh, it's growing in, in, in scope. And uh, as far as this particular treaty, I think we need to recognize that the Biden administration is not just going along with us. They're a co-conspirator. Mm. It's, it's WHO and the Biden administration that are leading this effort. 
Wow. And the U.S. does provide a lot of funding to the WHO. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we okay. provide um, a majority, uh, well, it's a disproportionate share of the funding of, of yeah. the more, you know, way too much. But but uh, yeah. and that's true of the U.N. in general. Uh, we we yeah. provide way more than any other nation. Yeah, which always kind of amazes me as an aside, because my understanding is that Uncle Sam is flat broke. And yet we seem to, you know, find plenty of money to fund all these um, external organizations. So, Mike, tell us about what you think we should know about the WHO Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. What is it all about? Obviously, we think it has some, you know, I assume that it has some relation to COVID and that was sort of the genesis of it, but what do we need to know about it? Well, the, the basic thing is not the details, but the structure of it. Uh, the, the, the details matter, of course, but, uh, but it really is a question of who makes the decisions for pandemics in the future. That's the real question that's being settled here. Uh, that's the, by far the most important. Uh, and as everybody experienced uh, in, in the COVID ex- years, um, governors and states were making the bulk of decisions. The federal government um, made many, many suggestions. Um, um, Dr. Fauci, uh, you know, issued what I called yada statements. You ought to do this, you ought to do that, you ought to do the other. <laughs> um, but uh, he didn't have that much power to force people to do things. Now, they made a couple of attempts at doing things, um, and the Supreme Court shut down uh, their infamous uh, attempt to force all employers to uh, adopt a a vaccine mandate. Um, But nonetheless, the federal government played a secondary and limited role in pandemics, and the governors and the states played the major role. And that will change if this treaty is adopted. Uh, because of the, of the nature of the way treaties work. Uh, Article 6 of the Constitution says that treaties uh, that are adopted by the United States become a part of the supreme law of the land. There are three things that are listed in Article 6 that are the supreme law of the land. One is the Constitution itself. One is laws passed by Congress, provided that they're constitutional laws. And then third, properly adopted treaties. Th- those are the three things. And so... If we adopt a treaty on on a subject, then it uh, and it, the, the next sentence of Article Six says anything in the state constitutions or the state laws to the contrary, notwithstanding. So it it is a direct textual override of mm-hmm. anything in state law, and the the legal principle that's you know kind of kicks all this off is that the agency that adopts a treaty. This is according to international law has the duty, the legal duty, to fulfill the treaty. And so that means since the federal government is adopting the the treaty, the federal government and not the states have the duty to fulfill the treaty. And the U.S. Supreme Court has ratified that position of international law. Uh, And so, uh, so what it all means net is that the law on treaty, excuse me, the law on pandemics from this point forward, if once we adopt the treaty, will be that the federal government and not the states calls the shots on treaties. And in turn, the federal government is under the general supervision of the World Health Organization. The, the, the U.S. would have to live up to U.N. standards on what it does. And so uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it becomes a superior power 
to the U.S. Because the number one rule of treaties is obey your promises. So we have promised to obey the U.N. standards, then we have a duty, a legal uh, and enforceable duty to obey those standards. And so that's what, if, that's, if that's what we properly signed up for, that's what we've gotten ourselves into. Now, uh, obviously, my goal is to not get us to sign up for this, but but yeah. that's that's what we're that's what we're all about here. So it's really interesting when we really look at it that way because it's not if the federal government enters into this treaty, it's not just the federal government surrendering proper federal powers to this international organization. It's really the federal government handing over powers that rightfully belong to the states, the power right. to make public health policy, which is left to the states under the Constitution, the federal government serving that up on a platter to this international organization. So that is really concerning. But let me ask you about this um, constitutional law issue. Every good student of the Constitution knows that the president can enter into treaties, but only with the advice and consent of two thirds of the Senate. And yet this WHO accord is drafted specifically to circumvent that requirement by stating that it will become effective and legally binding on member states provisionally as soon as it's signed without national legislative approval. So how can they do that? Well, you can write a treaty to do anything you want, uh, and, and uh, the question is whether it's binding in the particular country. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you uh, it can be uh, become provisionally binding, but the the issue is, does it become permanently binding? And mm -hmm. and permanently binding in, in our in most countries, they're going to have to go through whatever process their constitutional system requires for ratification. Uh, and in many countries, uh, the head of state, the president, the prime minister, whoever the head of state is, can sign the treaty and it's it's binding. But that's according to their law. That's not according to our law. Most most countries require some form of legislative ratification. Yeah. And, and of course, our constitution requires that as, as well. But unlike any other country in the world, we've created this the, uh, a two-class ratification strategy and we call our state department calls treaties uh, some treaties are called treaties and some treaties they call executive agreements and there's no place in the constitution for this two-tier approach they just made it up yeah. and, and so um, biden intends to advance this treaty as an executive agreement and bind the whole country without sending it to the u.s senate okay. now um, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called the United States versus Pink, uh, which I get some kind of, uh, I, I think Pink is, gives me allusions to, you know, soft communism, and it's not far <laughs> off. But uh, actually, it was it was a case involving Russia, hmm. an executive agreement we had with Russia, and um, over the seizure of Russian assets that were being held in the United, the assets of Russian nationals that were held in the United States. And Franklin Roosevelt gave those assets to the Soviet Union that they could seize, even though the Russian citizens had placed their assets in the U.S. Um, and so um, that case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held that the executive agreement was binding, and it was part of the supreme law of the land, and it had to be followed. Um, so uh, that's what they're intending to do. 
This is all made up out of thin air. It, it, you know, the, the constitutional originalism would not permit this, but the current Supreme Court does permit it under the executive agreement process. Now, there's, you know, there are problems with this that that we we can that I'm going to try to fight, <clears throat> but but it, it you know basically involves either clarifying but more likely reversing that that pink decision uh, okay. to be able to to correctly get this done. So yeah, just to um, sort of reiterate or emphasize what you're saying here for our reader, for our watchers, listeners, here's what the Senate's actual website says, and I'm quoting, in recent decades, presidents have frequently entered the United States into international agreements without the advice and consent of the Senate. These are called executive agreements. Though not brought before the Senate for approval, executive agreements are still binding on the parties under international law. So, Mike, what I don't understand, sort of from a political perspective, is why would the Senate just abdicate its constitutional power to approve treaties? You know, that's part of the founders' great design of, you know, dividing power among branches of the federal government so they have checks and balances, why would the Senate abdicate that power? It's for the same reason the Senate and the House say routinely, the secretary shall make rules that. Uh, it, it, it's, they, they, uh, there are 50 volumes of federal laws passed by Congress. There are 200 volumes of laws passed by the administrative agencies. They don't want to do the work and they don't want to the political responsibility of all this stuff. If, if the president dro- uh, adopts the treaty, they didn't have to vote for it. They don't get blamed for it if, they, if people don't like it. They just say, oh, Biden did that. I didn't vote on that. And so it's, it's, it's laziness and political blame shifting. It also is an indication that because they, they genuinely do have too much work to do. But the reason they have too much work to do is they've been usurping the power of the states. They they shouldn't be holding hearings on education. They shouldn't be holding right. hearing, hearing on the environment. They shouldn't be holding hearings on any of the things that are within the jurisdiction of the states. And all those things are within the jurisdiction of the states. And so if they would stick to what their own jurisdictional limits are, they would have a very reasonable workload. But you know, when when you try to run, run every detail of the country uh, from from the U.S. Senate, from the U.S. House, you do have a workload problem. Uh, it's of their own making, and so <clears throat> the you know the, the overall solution is you know go back to obeying your constitutional limits, and you'll have a much more reasonable life. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanna I wanna just focus in on that for a minute and talk about. The remedy. What is the remedy for the nation when we see all three branches of the federal government? Because you mentioned that the Supreme Court has kind of given its blessing to this little arrangement. Um, but when we see all three branches of the federal government sort of colluding to create this kind of loophole in the Constitution, you know saying, well, this isn't a treaty that we're going to call this an an executive agreement. They're creating this type of loophole in the Constitution. And 
when they do this and the court lets it go, says it's okay, what's the remedy? How do we fix this? Well, let me just give you a couple of factoids and then I'll answer the question. We okay. do about 200 treaties a year as the country. And the State Department on its website clearly says that executive agreements are treaties in international law. They, they, don't, they don't play games with it. They, they don't pretend that they are something other than treaties. Wow. And uh, of, of the 200 treaties that we do, between one and five per year get sent to the Senate for ratification, which means between 195 and 199 per year are adopted in this fashion. Now, people would say, well, aren't these a lot of perfunctory things? Some of them really are perfunctory. But mm -hmm. the Senate has figured out ways to, you know, handle in mass um, things. They have to approve every Army commission, every Navy commission, it said all military commissions above the rank of major or major and above. And, yeah. and that's a lot. And they're not uh -huh. holding hearings on that. They just they just run it through. They, they've, they've learned how to, to mass process things. And if, if there are indeed um, things about, you know, the location of the embassy in a particular city and we want to, you know, uh, uh, get another two blocks of property or something, okay, that, that doesn't need a whole lot of the Senate's attention, but it does need its vote. Um, and, and so, but uh, the remedy to stop this is, you know, the only way we can uh, reverse the Supreme Court decision that's relevant here is Article 5. Now, unless we, you know, we can do litigation and seek to reverse it, mm -hmm. but otherwise it's Article 5. That's it. Because to get two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate to put a stop to this, which is what you're going to have to propose a constitutional amendment. When, when the Constitution is not being interpreted correctly, you either reverse it or you re, or you revise it to to clarify that the this this cozy cozy arrangement as you've appropriately called it um, is is nonsense and we're not going to keep doing it. We don't want important decisions made like this. Now the other question that you would people would ask is why did the founding fathers agree to this in the first place? Why would they say that treaties become part of the highest law of the land and override everything in the states? Uh -huh. The answer is. Until World War II ended, treaties dealt with two and only two things, how one nation treats another nation and what happens on the high seas, particularly piracy. That's it. That's all it dealt with. Um, now, you could expand that to Antarctica and, you know, uh, but, but that's, you know, there weren't many treaties before World War II on Antarctica. So, you know, but that that really is it. It's, it's truly things in the international sphere. It was never a treaty on how America controls itself internally. That did not happen, uh, or any nation for that matter, because not only should America make the law for America, France should make the law for France, England should make the law for England, and, you know, Bolivia should make the law for Bolivia. Uh, it, you know, the principle of self-government is a universal principle that, that our belief in universal rights says that that should be followed everywhere. And, and yet we have these human rights treaties that tell countries how they must govern themselves internally. Um, and the founders never agreed to that. And so two things that are parallel to that uh, have changed or come into significance. The change was the states controlled the U.S. Senate. 
they appointed the senators until the 17th Amendment. So the states effectively were agreeing to treaties. Uh, and, and that was another stopgap on it. But but uh, so I, you know, I believe that this is something that should be dealt with in our Article 5 convention. Mike, just quickly, how do you think the founders would have reacted if someone had told them that someday in this country that, you know, they risked their lives for um, that one day we would, you know, want to voluntarily agree to have some other group of nations involved in making our public policy. They would grab them by the shirt collar and shake them and say, what are you guys doing? You're a bunch of idiots. Because yes. I mean, Why do you think we did the American Revolution in the first place? Because America wanted to make the law for America. We didn't want the, you know, the intolerable acts uh, the British Parliament said we have jurisdiction to make law for the for the United States in all cases whatsoever. And our response is you have the raw, right to make the law for the United States in no cases whatsoever. That's mm-hmm. the deal. I mean, that's the divide. And so um, this is the uh, this strikes at the very essence of what the United States was about. And so um, we need to fight this. And, you know, there's there's a legal strategy. And I intend personally to pursue that. But there's also the political strategy, uh, you know, is the cure once and for all. And that is Article 5 Convention and uh, an amendment that says the United States Senate shall have uh, shall be required to ratify all treaties of any kind. And we we put the agreed to international definition of treaty in and that would cover these uh, agreements. Mm -hmm. They all have to go to the Senate for ratification. And I, I. that's the minimum. I would yeah. like to add to that, that if the treaty purports to govern the internal law of the United States, that it also has to be ratified by three-fourths of the several states, because it's effectively a change in the Constitution. And mm-hmm. and so, which would mean, I don't think any of these treaties would ever get ratified if we did that. Uh, the ones that, yeah. you know, it, it we would go back to treaties in their proper sphere, and that is how we treat other nations, that wouldn't go to the states, and what we do on, on the high seas, that wouldn't go to the states either. That would stay yep. in the U.S. Senate as it, as it should. So for our listeners, viewers who are new to the program, if you haven't heard us discuss Article 5 of the Constitution before, just briefly, Article 5 is the article that deals with amendments to the Constitution. There are two ways they can be proposed. Either Congress can propose them. Well, that's not going to happen in this case. Or the states can get together and propose amendments to the Constitution that then have to be ratified by 38 states. So this, um, what Mike is proposing here would be germane to um, the effort that we have going to call a convention to propose amendments to the Constitution. If you want to learn more or get into specifics, again, it's conventionofstates.com. Mike, we are starting to run out of time, but I want to go to a little bit of a different issue on this. You know, this program is called Crossroads, Where Faith and Culture Meet. Speaking specifically to the people of faith who are listening to the program, why should they care about this? And let me break that down into two parts. First, why should they care about the prospect of the World Health Organization being given power over U.S. policy in matters like this, healthcare? <clears throat> well, if you remember 
very recent history, you'll remember that churches were shut down in, in the wake of the pandemic. And that didn't happen just in the United States. This happened all over the world. And so um, if you want churches shut down and you want to turn that decision over to Joe Biden and the UN, then you shouldn't worry at all about this. But if you, if you want churches to be able to, to operate without difficulty uh, during uh, a, a period of, of pandemic, then you should care because that decision needs to be made at the state level and preferably actually by the state legislature and not by the governor doing fiat. But mm-hmm. but nonetheless, it should be at the state level. We, we have a lot more control over that and we can fight back a lot easier when we're fighting at that at that level. If we're fighting at the UN, you know, good luck with that. That you can't even bring a, 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 a people, individuals can't bring cases in the International Court of Justice. Only nations can file suits there. So yeah. you, you can't go litigate it. You can't do anything. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's a mess. And so uh, we dare not. And you know, and on top of that, you get the mandatory vaccines that that a lot of people had religious objections to. Mm-hmm. And so there, there will be a direct interference with faith. Uh, you mm-hmm. can be guaranteed. It, it, it happened here. It will happen again. Yeah. The second part of this, why should people of faith care about the sort of loopholes being made in our constitution that really changed the way our federal government was meant to operate? Why should we be concerned about that? Well, um, you know, the, loopholes uh, grow. And, you know, one loophole begets another loophole. And so if we're going to have robust protections for religious liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of association, we've got to have robust protections of all of our constitutional rights. That's at one level. At another level, the growth of government is based on a philosophy that government solves all your problems. And that's contrary to a core Christian belief. And that is God is the source of that supplies our needs, not government. Um, and so it, it's the erection of a state central way of life, a philosophy that takes the place of God in life. And so we should not be supporting any kind of a governmental program that um, challenges God's authority. God's authority is challenged when we are being told men and women are flexible and can be you know, swapped for one another. That's that's challenging God's authority about creating men and women, um, and and the sufficiency of God. You know, it's Jehovah Jireh, not not government Jireh, and that's that's the bottom line here. Is is the the government wants to be worshipped and wants all power to be able to you know it, it has illusions of you know illusions and delusions of grandeur. Yes. Uh, so that's you know it. it, it it can go pretty deep pretty fast. Mike, you have been a big help in my understanding of all of this. Thank you so much for being with me on the program. And thank you for all that you are doing to protect the rights of American people and protect our system of governance under the Constitution. Thank you, Rita. I also want to thank our generous sponsors at Blue Ridge Chimney Services, Blessings Christian Bookstore, Sunshine Ministries with Christian Radio, Wishing Well Florists and Travel Services, and our good friends at New Beginnings Church and Garber's Church of the Brethren in Harrisonburg. 
Thanks everyone for listening today, for your encouragement and your continued financial support. If you'd like to make a donation to help keep Crossroads on the air, you can do so by check to Crossroads at P.O. Box 881, Harrisonburg, Virginia, 22803. That's it for today. I'm Rita Peters inviting you to join us again next week for another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com.